Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MilkStreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash MilkStreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. 
in a way, we're sort of stuck in this almost 1950s paradigm that dinner is a protein and two sides. And dinner is what our mothers or our grandmothers used to make. And in order for it to be a proper dinner, you really need to sit down and have little piles of distinct food on your plate. And that's just not the way that we want to eat, I don't think, anymore. I mean, sometimes, but certainly not every single night. That was Melissa Clark, New York Times columnist and cookbook author. You know, along with electric cars and the speed of the internet, the world of food is changing almost daily. Clark has been on the front lines of What's for Dinner, and her new book entitled Dinner, Changing the Game, is a spirited attempt to answer that question. So whatever is showing up for dinner these days, it's not meat and two veg. It's a mashup of cultures and ingredients and techniques that most of us had never thought of a generation ago. I'll be speaking to her later in the show. But first, this week's recipe, peri-peri chicken. Just recently, our editorial director, J.M. Hirsch, got back from Cape Town, South Africa, where he visited a place called Mazzoli's. This is an open-air shack-slash-restaurant, and it's one of the townships where very few tourists end up. So this is a place they grill meat, all different kinds of meat, but it's not just a barbecue joint. They're local bands, people are jumping up and down, they're rowdy. At the restaurant, J.M. spoke to a man named Mishek, who was one of the grill cooks. Welcome to Mzolis. This is where the magic happens. Like this place, it brings people together. Blacks, whites, colors, Chinese from all walks of life. So today at Milk Street, I have J.M. here in the studio to tell me a little bit about his trip, what braai is, I'm not quite sure, and also the chicken recipe we were after, piri-piri chicken. So how are you? I'm doing great. First of all, I don't know why you got to go on this trip and I didn't. <laughs> Uh, as usual, you get the good spots. This is not a place uh, most tourists would ever go, right? No, it's it's pretty much off the beaten path. You know, it's it's in the Guguletu Township, which is about 11 miles outside of Cape Town. And all of a sudden, the streets just open up. And there's crowds of people gathering around this kind of low-hung building. And, and that's when the smoke hits you and the, the smell of the roasting meat. So Mazzoli's is it's kind of the center of this long brick building. But outside, that's, that's where all the action is happening. There's probably 50, 60, 70 people lined up for Mazzoli's. People are already brying, they're already grilling. They've got piles of wood and, and cut open fire pits that meat is sizzling away on. And it just smells incredibly savory and meaty and rich here, the, the whole area. We're not even close to the restaurant yet and it smells and tastes wonderful. If you manage to get to the front of the line, which for most people it takes hours and hours, but when you get up there, you just kind of point and you tell the ladies behind the counter what you want for your meat. And there are chops, there's sausages, there's chickens, whatever, and behind, don't worry that they're going to run out. There's a guy with an unguarded bandsaw in the back, hacking away, he'll give you whatever you want. And this is all raw. Oh, this is all yeah. raw, yeah. And they give you a box or, or, you know, a massive carton of your meat. And then, this is very DIY here, you take your bucket or box of meat and you walk down this narrow path. And, and by the way, maybe walk is a bit of an exaggeration. You kind of slide down because there's a slick of fat on the tile floor. Is this inside still? Yep, you're okay. all inside. Yeah. And you go back and all of a sudden the room just opens up. And you are faced by these roaring infernos. And each fire pit is about the size of a car. And, and you put your bucket of meat down, and you hope that sometime soon they'll take your bucket and roast it. So, so we're standing in front of one of three massive bays of, of kind of a wood-fired braai, wood-fired grill. And there's a thick, thick, heavy-duty iron grate over these, over these coals. And Ricardo is using this twisted metal pole to just keep plucking the meat, turning it, moving it around. And to me, it just looks like an incredible amount of meat on there, but he's got it organized. It's an amazing system where the meat itself divides the different orders. And these orders are coming in in these massive enamel metal bowls and must be 10, 15 pounds of meat per bowl. In theory, they'll call you when it's done, but that never happened. Everybody just kind of crowded around in this, in this compact room and waited 
for the meat to be cooked. In our case, it took you know, about three or four hours. They've grilled it and, and they've tossed it back in the bucket. They slather their secret sauce on it. They hand it back to you and they tell you to get out. And <laughs> you, you work your way back through the, you know, the dark tunnel, back through the crowds in the front deli, and you go next door and where there's this covered area that is just a massive meat party. Everybody is dancing and singing, and and this is, again, a very visceral experience. You just reach into your bucket of meat, and you start eating. And there, there's no silverware, no seats. You dive in, you, you grab your meat, and you go. There's beers. There, it was just an outrageous experience. Well, after five hours, I'd be pretty excited, too. I mean, <laughs> so you have to stand in this 120-degree cooking area waiting for your meat or do you well if you want a chance of your meat kind of going to the front of the crowd yes in south africa braai is really a it is both a food, it's a technique, and it's a culture. But it, it broadly refers to barbecue culture, and it's as strong in South Africa as in the American South here. And so people take this very seriously. It's, it is one of the main social outlets across races in South Africa. So talk about the food. We brought back uh, the piri-piri chicken, yeah. which, which I thought was, it's quite different than what I thought it would be. So what is it? So, okay. So like I said, there's a spectrum of braai. At Mazzoli's, it's very basic. You know, they dust the meat with some sort of seasoning blend and then they grill it and then they, they sauce it. And so piri piri at its most basic is a, is a red chili sauce. It's fresh chilies with sugar and a lot of lemon and cayenne and paprika. And it can be very saucy or it can be very thick. And depending on where you have it and how it's applied, but in South Africa, you'll find it applied to just about anything. I had it on shrimp. I had it on chicken. I had it on sausages. One of my favorite things, which is going to sound very odd, but was a, a soupy bowl of chicken livers. And <laughs> you literally eat with a spoon. And it was phenomenal. The sauce just has this richness. It's sweet. It's got heat. Uh, it, it's, it's got some tang to it from the lemon. It's a very vibrant sauce. And, and that was one of the things I wanted to bring back from Brai because it was just a very distinct and distinctly South African taste and, and a way of approaching meat. Well, it sounds like you went to this township, you went to Mazzoli's, and we came back with a recipe we never would have gotten, but you probably came back a changed man. <laughs> No, I mean, it just sounds like it's, it's, it goes to the heart of the whole concept, which is that it's, it's the experience around the food, right? I mean, it, Absolutely. you'll never find that here in America. No. You know, you're standing there surrounded by people dancing and singing about meat. <laughs> and there's music and there's just bodies everywhere and there's beer and, and the smell of meat. And, and just it was just overwhelming in a wonderful way. And, and you can't look at barbecue the same <laughs> after you've done that. So a year from now, I shall look forward to JM's barbecue joints uh, all across America. JM, thank you very much. Thanks so much. You can find our recipe for Piri Piri Chicken, my story, and all our photos at 177milkstreet.com. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. All of our shows are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and TuneIn. Now let's take some of your cooking questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. She's star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals and author of Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Carol from Sudbury. How can we help you? Well, I listened to a show a couple of weeks ago, and you were raving about a wine from the Jura. I'm not right. sure exactly how to say it, but the uh, mountains in France. It's right next to Burgundy, and I love Burgundy, so I raced over and bought it, and then I found that it tasted just like, I don't know, sherry, I guess, and I didn't like it, and I thought maybe I could use it in cooking, and you would have some ideas. Did you go to the website and buy the exact wines that Stephen, our wine guy, recommended, or you just bought some Jura wine? No, the one that you tasted wasn't there. Well, you know, there is some purposeful oxidation that goes on with these wines. So they do have that little bit of a sherry edge. These were unusual wines, though, I have to say. Obviously, you didn't like this one, huh, Carol? I just thought that it was obviously a nice wine and that maybe there was something good that I could use it for in cooking. I was thinking sherry and chicken and mushrooms and Oh, absolutely. Where is the wine right now? I hope it's in the fridge. Yes. 
Well, I think all the things you just suggested would be great. You know, even be good in a stir fry with beef, as a matter of fact. I would reduce it down at a real sub-simmer first. You would? Yeah, I would probably reduce it down a little bit just to get more concentrated. Do that separately and then well, add that. Couldn't you, you just deglaze the pan and let it reduce? You could deglaze the pan or let it reduce. You know what it might also be good for is poaching, like poaching pears. That's an excellent idea. Uh, oh. That's a great idea. Or poaching idea. some other fruit. Pears are not really in season, but other fruits are beginning to come into season. I bet that would be lovely, you know, with, yeah. uh, combined with some sugar. Or here's another idea. You know the dish, uh, the Italian eggy dessert called zablioni, where you whip egg and sugar and uh, wine until it's foamy marsala. and thick. Yeah. Yeah, with, and usually you use marsala, but I bet this would be very nice in there. Oh, it's zablioni. I think the poaching is the best thing. Yeah. You can use it up. You can poach some pears right and now. Then, and then it can. will taste pretty good all by yeah. itself. It will make the fruit taste better, and then it will taste better. Well, because you've added sugar to it. Yes, of course. Okay. Yes. Okay. Oh, that's a great idea. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, give it a shot. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This is Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a ring one 855-4-BOWTIE. That's 855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Kyle. I'm, and I'm wondering what kind of potatoes I can use for recipes like shepherd's pie. What kind of potatoes to use for shepherd's pie? Well, Yukon Golds are sort of the all-purpose potato. They have good flavor, they're not too fluffy and fall apart. They hold together. That's what I would use. Russets are good, too. Russets, you know, the they'll, old they'll baking fall apart pota- a little bit, though. They will. The old baking potato. Either one's good, but Yukon Gold, I think, has a better flavor. Kai, how old are you? I'm 14. And do you make shepherd's pie? Yeah. Good. It's one of my favorite things. I know? love it, too. Do you make it with lamb or with beef? With beef. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. good. Do you make it with uh, any kind of crust, or it's just in a pie plate of some kind or in a casserole? Just in a pie plate. Yeah. And then you put the potatoes on top. Right. I think russets, actually, yeah, let's go with russets, because they'll mash up well, right? I think either one would be good. I mean, they'll mash up better than Yukon Golds, but I think either one would be good. You know, we made about two months ago, we made a shepherd's pie in Milk Street. I don't know why. And after I had my third portion... (laughs) You know, I'm eating all of these, like, Sichuan things and North Africa and Peruvian dishes. And then we had potatoes and ground meat. And, you know, It was pretty yummy. Yeah, it's just one of those fabulous. It's, yeah. Is that your favorite dish, Kai? Yeah. Yeah, I'm with you, man. How long have you been cooking? I've been cooking since we have made a cooking show. You made a cooking show? Yeah. Hold on. Wait. What do you mean you made a cooking show? You did that with your dad and mom or what? My dad. That's cool. What's the name of the show? It's called um, The Pop and Kai Test Kitchen. <laughs> That's pretty good. Good for you, man. Good for you. So you want to be a chef when you grow up, or you want to do something else? I think I like to be a chef when I grow up. I think food TV show star. Right. I'm not sure if it worked out for me or not, but, <laughs> but we're still it doing it. Kai, thank you so much. Thank you. And, uh, that's great. So good luck with the show. And the shepherd's pie. And the shepherd's pie. And thanks yes. for calling. Yes. Take care. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Best of luck, Kai. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. After the break, I speak with Melissa Clark, columnist for the New York Times and also author of Dinner, Changing the Game. Clark sees a culinary revolution coming and it's big, bold, and knows no boundaries. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. 
My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavor of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time to chat with Melissa Clark, New York Times columnist and cookbook author, over the last half century, I've seen culinary revolutions come and go. First, there was Julia Child in the world of classic French cooking. Then the American restaurant scene with Alice Waters and Jeremiah Tower and Larry Forgione and dozens of others. And then the rebirth of what we used to call ethnic cooking. And then the new fast food, including internet providers such as Blue Apron. With three dozen cookbooks under her belt, Melissa Clark seems like just the person to ask about this revolution. Is it for real or just the emperor's new clothes? So I was looking through your book, which I love, by the way. It, it felt to me like a Milk Street editorial meeting because I, I, re I recognized, I mean, you and I have been, I guess, on the same path for a while, maybe you longer than me. You know, recipe tiles with Thai, Vietnamese, sake, steam, tamarind, harissa, zatar, Aleppo, sumac, tandoori, Cuban, Turkish, Georgian, et cetera. So this is a mashup uh, and... I've felt for some time this has been coming. Like music and fashion, the world of food is going to not be about authentic ethnic cooking. It's just going to be a mashup. Is that pretty much where you are now? You know, I feel like there's places for everything. Um, I think that 
keeping things very authentic and really diving deep into the authenticity of a cuisine is great and you learn so much. But there also needs to be a place for the mashups for, I mean, I hate to say fusion cuisine because that just brings back bad 80s, you know, cows, Japanese or whatever. But um, there does need to be a place for a mixing of flavors and a mixing of experiences on the same plate because we can get to some amazing dishes if we're open to that. Yeah, I've always said if you just went to every country in the world and had chicken soup, which they all have, you, that's all you need to know because you would you'd find out a lot about a, about a country and about a culture and about their cooking, the way they they do chicken soup. And you know, the chicken soup in America is fine, but there are lots of alternatives. So, the, the title of your book is dinner. I don't even know what is dinner. I, I, I've given up on dinner. I mean, d- dinner doesn't <laughs> exist. It's, it's it's a word that has no meaning anymore, right? Really. You know what? Actually, it's funny because I do think that we have this idea that dinner has to be, in a way, we're sort of stuck in this almost 1950s paradigm that dinner is a protein and two sides. And dinner is what our mothers or our grandmothers used to make. And in order for it to be a proper dinner, you really need to sit down and have little piles of distinct food on your plate. And that's just not the way that we want to eat, I don't think, anymore. I mean, sometimes, but certainly not every single night. I think we've become much more adventuresome. We mix it up. We want to go out to restaurants and we want to order, you know, four side dishes and no entree. And we want to share everything and, you know, or go to a small plates restaurant. Or maybe we just want to have a big old rice bowl with some kimchi on it for dinner. And there's places for everything. And there's so many different ways to get to dinner. And what I wanted to do in this book was to just show different paths. You know, you can have a delicious steak and, you know, maybe with some sliced jalapeno marinated with a little bit of honey. And that's a great dinner. But so is eggs. You know, we forget eggs are an amazing dinner. There's just a lot of ways to get there. Either I've been living inside your head or you've been living inside my head or something because I, you just, those are my speeches. You, you say, quote, there are very few hard and fast rules when it comes to cooking, which, uh, I don't know whether I totally agree with that or I totally disagree with that. I mean, I wonder whether, there actually are rules, uh, and when you're when you spend a lot of time in the kitchen, like if you spend a lot of time being a musician, you sort of the the rules become part of you. So you don't think of them as rules, and so then you can just go do stuff. But but you really know they're rules. So aren't there really a lot of rules when it comes to cooking? Aren't there a lot of things you just shouldn't do? Or you think at this point, you know, you can break all the rules and be a good cook? You know, that's interesting. Um, One of the things I've done in my career was spend a lot of time co-authoring cookbooks with chefs. And I also used to think, oh, you know, when you go into a professional kitchen, there are these rules. Like there there is this technique, this sort of gold standard technique that you need to learn. And I was very sort of obsessed with getting the technique right. And as I worked with different chefs, I realized that, in fact, there is no one technique. There are so many different techniques. You go into Danielle Ballou's kitchen, and he cuts an onion differently from the Bromberg brothers. And neither is right nor wrong, but they give slightly different flavors, textures to the end dish. And so I think that I mean, the rules are, yeah, don't burn the house down and don't cut your finger off. But aside from that, I think there's a lot of leeway. And there's also you what you need to do as a cook, you know, at, at a more advanced level is understand what you want in the dish and know how to get there by learning different techniques. But I don't I really don't believe in one technique that all chefs need to learn. And that's very freeing, I think, for the home cook, too, because you know what? If you're doing it your way and it tastes good, you just keep doing it your way because that's working out just fine. And I don't think people should feel inadequate because they haven't internalized all these professional techniques. Let's talk about roasting a chicken. So you and I have been at this for a very long time. And I've been through the brining thing and the salting thing and the breast side up and the breast side down and high temperature, then low temperature, low temperature, then high temperature. I think you've finally gotten to the point because you have this great chicken chapter with like 20 recipes. You just said, you know, the heck with that. I'm going to crank the oven to 450 put it breast side up for 50 minutes, and then I'm just going to think about, you know, what I'm going to put in the roasting pan. But if you've gotten to the point where you just, you're sick and tired of some of these back and forth, which you just don't think matter. Oh, absolutely. 
I mean, when you're dealing in nuance, maybe the skin would be ever so slightly more crisp if you did it this way or you did it that way. I I guess, you know, it's sort of balancing the the perfect roast chicken with how much time and mental energy you're willing to give it. And maybe on a weekend, you'd, you know, you'd finesse it a little bit more, but maybe you're just going to salt and pepper the chicken and you're going to stick it in the oven and it's going to come out golden and gorgeous and delicious enough. And there's a lot to be said for that. Chicken and grapes. Uh, I beautiful photograph in the book, and and um, I was quite taken with that recipe. Do you want to tell us quickly how that works? That is one of my favorite recipes in the book. Um, well, first of all, the chicken is spatchcocked, which as we as I really truly believe, and I know that you're with me on this, it's a quicker way to get a roast chicken. You cut the backbone out of the bird, you spread it open, and you put it on a roasting pan. And instead of taking an hour, it'll cook in 40 minutes. And you really get evenly cooked chicken. I mean, the breast meat doesn't dry out, the dark meat cooks at the same time. And while that chicken is on the roasting pan, I I love a sheet pan supper. I love putting other things on the roasting pan at the same time to create a more interesting meal. And grapes. Grapes are just one of those ingredients that we forget are wonderful cooked. I mean, we give them to our kids, we put them in fruit salad, but we don't cook them, not very often. And when they roast, along with the chicken, bathed in roasting chicken juices and garlic and olive oil, they get caramelized, they shrivel, they're still juicy and sweet. And then right at the end, I hit them up with a little bit of vinegar, which just adds that tartness to their sweetness. It's such an easy dish and it's such a beautiful dish. There was another recipe that really caught my attention, the herbed Parmesan Dutch baby. You want to talk about that? Yeah, so Dutch Baby, um, also called German Pancake, is basically about the magic of eggs. It's such an easy recipe, and most people eat this for breakfast, and you just beat your eggs with some flour and some melted butter, and you put it in the oven at very high heat, and the whole thing puffs up. It almost looks like, you know, it goes in absolutely flat, and it comes out this beautiful, rugged mountain of a almost souffléed-looking dish, and Instead of using sugar and maple syrup or sugar and lemon juice and powdered sugar, I used herbs and Parmesan cheese, and I turned it into almost like a giant gougere. I think it's a fantastic dinner. Serve it with a salad and some red wine. And it's just, it's just this very whimsical way to have dinner. But it has, it has eggs, it has protein, it's got cheese. So I think it's, I think, you know, talk back to what we were talking about before, there are so many ways to get to dinner. And what I really wanted to do in this book was offer people choices, things they wouldn't think of themselves, but that were very easy to do. So what are some legitimate pantry items here? I mean, you know, for many years, as you know, I was very much classic American, and I, I just didn't want to deal with ingredients people, the average person, wouldn't have at home. And all of a sudden, I look in my pantry, and it's very different. There's pomegranate molasses. I have actually have sumac there, Aleppo pepper, et cetera, za'atar. Uh, is this because you and I are in this business, and we have no idea what, you know, our, our readers have, and, and we're totally out of touch? Or do you think people really are changing what's in their spice drawer? I think people are absolutely changing what's in their spice drawer. And I do think that maybe you and I are one step ahead of them. Like, I think people have, maybe they have the za'atar and um, I think they're starting to have a lot of different kinds of chilies for sure. I think they have fish sauce. I think they have sriracha and different chili pastes. Pomegranate molasses is kind of on the edge, but um, the more that we give them recipes and reasons to buy these things, the more likely they are to seek them out. And then once they have them, the more likely they are to use them in their everyday cooking. So I really feel like it's important. I mean, I get the idea of you don't want to freak people out with ingredients that they've never heard of and they can't get and you don't want to make them resentful. But on the other hand, if you don't ever sort of stretch them and challenge them, then you're going to deprive them of deliciousness. So I do think that it's about striking a balance there. And um, in in my book, I, I have the opening chapter is all about how to set up your pantry. And all of the things that you just mentioned, I think people should invest in. They should just, you know, go to a really big market, you know, or Whole Foods or somewhere or order on the internet. Do one big shopping, lay yourself in with supplies. And then once you've got the stuff there, you're going to find ways to use it, especially if you like the way the things taste. Like pomegranate molasses. I mean, Chris, do you use that? I fi- I use it all the time. I, use I put it, it in salad all, dressing. It's my secret ingredient. I put it ingredient. on vegetables. I love it. Yeah. Here's my theory. So over time, uh, it's sort of like being in high school and wearing terrible clothes, right? And then, and then you get out in the world and you start to develop a sense of your own style, whatever that might be. Do you think that pretty much describes the way most people 
grow up in cooking, that they start off, they don't really know what they like or what their style is. But over time, you really develop a very clear sense of your style of cooking. Or do you think, based on your book, that you have, uh, you know, 50 different styles? It just depends what's your, what you're in the mood for. I just keep, I hope I keep changing. I mean, I, I definitely have more of a fashion style in that I don't really have any fashion style than I do cooking style in that I have many cooking styles. I am always looking to learn something new, to try something new. I guess, you know what, you know what my style is? If I was going to define my style in a way that it has become very entrenched and is getting more entrenched over the years as I cook more, it's I, I cannot stand fussiness. I, am, yeah. I want to cook things as in a streamlined way using as few dishes as possible. I want my cleanup to be easy. I want my technique to be right. easy. I just don't want to fuss. I, I'm less, I have less patience. So maybe that's a bad thing, but I feel like that is definitely part of my style that is growing larger. But in terms of the way that, in terms of the ingredients and the flavor is like that keeps growing and changing. I want to learn more. I want to taste more. I just want to keep expanding. You know, there's so many ingredients and culinary styles I haven't even like I don't know anything about Burmese cuisine and I just got a cookbook and I cannot wait to dive in. So where is this all headed 10 or 15 years from now? Do you think we won't recognize how people cook in 10 years or do you think it'll be just a a slow extension of where we are today? Uh, that's a good question, actually, because things are moving really quickly, and we are learning new influences, and we can we have such access to all these different ingredients almost instantaneously in a way that we didn't. But at the same time, you also have this movement of getting simpler. You have a very, you know, I, I do think that we're also going to continue to get more interested in local food. And with local food comes limitations. So on the one hand, you can get any ingredient you want in a matter of, you know, 24 hours. But on the other hand, it's going to take an entire year to grow that amazing tomato. You know, that's like this perfect thing. So I think there's tension there. And I think that tension is going to become even more apparent in the future. That was Melissa Clark, New York Times staff reporter for the food section, also author of the new cookbook, Dinner, Changing the Game. You know, history is full of revolutions, and they almost always involve what is now called creative destruction. One society is destroyed to make way for another. And of course, historians often conclude that in the long run, this destruction, sometimes on a massive scale, is necessary to bring humanity into the future. Now, in the culinary world, we're on the brink of a new world order. We're about to be inspired by everything, not just our own thing. Now, I don't want to give up my apple pie, but I do want a seat at the culinary table of the future. So I'm hoping that I can have my cake and eat it too. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, staff writer for The New Yorker Adam Gopnik is here to talk about the ultimate cast iron pan. Adam, how are you? I am very well, Chris. How are you? Uh, I'm good. And to what heights shall we aspire this week? Well, I have a story to tell you this week about old and new. You know, I live in an apartment building in New York, and one of the oddities of many New York apartment buildings is that they do not have gas lines, and you have to use an electric stove. I've been using an electric stove here for, oh, 15 or 16 years, an inherited electric stove, and I think everybody knows the disabilities of electric stoves, how slow they are to heat up, how you can never get that kind of top heat, that kind of spinal tap. This goes to 11 heat we love when we're searing and browning and so on. So for Christmas, my family conspired to surprise me with an induction range, Hmm. which, as I'm sure you know, cooks through magnetic principles, which I don't begin to understand, but which does a reasonable job of imitating the sudden ascension, the quick hit, and the powerful sear of a gas range. The one catch with an induction range, as I'm sure you know, is that what you cook with has to be magnetic. It has to be something that is easily magnetized. In fact, you have to walk around with a little magnet in your pocket when you go to cookware stores to make sure that the magnet sticks so that the induction range can do its magic. Sadly, Chris, almost all of my cookware was copper that I collected or bought Hmm. in our years in France. The ideal thing to cook with on an induction range is, therefore, cast iron. But I was talking to a friend, a chef friend, about my dilemma about having to discard or at least put aside for now my copper 
and begin to cook more and more with cast iron. And he said to me, with a funny gleam in his eye, he said, oh, you don't really want to use contemporary cast iron. You need to look at a Griswold. Are you aware, Chris, of the cult of the Griswold cast iron skillet? I've heard the name. I don't know anything about the cult, no. Well, my friend Peter turned me on to this cult, and being somebody who was always drawn to snobby little cults, I went on to explore it. When I say cult, I mean that Scientology is nothing compared to it. Go <laughs> on eBay or Amazon or any place where cooks congregate, and you will discover that Griswold is the Bugatti in the history of cast iron. Beyond the Bugatti, it's the Stradivarius of cast iron. Griswold, it turns out, was a cast iron manufacturer in Erie, Pennsylvania, that survived uh, for about 100 years from the Civil War right up to the time when you and I were born, Chris. And they had a special technique for cast iron plate that gave the bottom of the cast iron pan some of the features of not just of, of aluminum, but indeed of copper. You know, Chris, that one of the great quarrels among chefs has always been whether you can really deglaze on cast iron, right. right? You've written about that. Can you do acidic things in cast iron? Can you really cook properly with wine and deglazing with cast iron? Well, on Griswold cast iron, my chef friend assured me, you could actually do this. This was the miraculous cast iron. This was the philosopher's stone of cast iron. All of it went out of production 60 years ago, so the only way you can buy it is secondhand in auctions on eBay and similar kinds of sites. And I immediately fell in love with the idea of owning a Griswold cast iron plate. And I began to bid feverishly on Griswold cast iron skillets on eBay. And I found myself being sniped time and again at the last minute. There are apparently kind of Griswold predators who wait till the very last minute and then snatch the Griswold right from your dreams. So finally, seeing a Griswold 8-inch skillet on sale, I finally made a preemptive bid. It arrived about two days later in a big FedEx package, and I tore it open to get at my Griswold, and it was broken. It was broken right in half because one of the things the Griswold maniacs don't tell you, is that Griswold cast iron is extremely brittle because of the cast technique they used to make it. I had to go back to eBay and go in search of another Griswold to cook on. Finally, my beautiful Griswold 10-inch, uh, made sometime around 1949, arrived after I had paid a considerable price for it. I might add, I'm ashamed to tell you how much I was prepared to pay, and it arrived, and I began to cook with this 80-year-old skillet on my brand-new, hyper-modern induction range. By the way, I'm on the edge of my seat right now, <laughs> because I'm, I'm dying to know what happened. <laughs> I cooked dinner that night on my well-seasoned 90-year-old Griswold skillet. And you know what? No. I'm waiting. It worked fine. It worked fine. It worked about as well as every other pan I've ever cooked in. Was it worth the endless search for this Stradivarius of cast iron skillets? Probably not. And yet, you've heard people say the journey is more important than the destination. There was something about that with this Griswold. There was something so beautiful about the idea of bringing in harmony this hyper-modern technology of induction with this antique cult of the Griswold skillet. Something so cool about having your great-grandmother's skillet on your child's uh, range that it was satisfying as, what shall we call it, an aesthetic confection, even if it didn't add very much to that night's dinner. I, I just have in my mind's eye the copper you probably bought it at De or one of those places in Paris. Delorin, exactly yes. right, at Delorin. And, you know, I, I did too. I have a bunch of those. And the relationship you have with those pans, which goes back three decades, I, I, feel, I feel lonely now. You, you've abandoned your friends for <laughs> a new relationship. I, and and I, it, it is kind of making me sad. You couldn't be more right. Not only do I have a kind of... Uh, technical and artisanal relationship to the copper, I have a personal relationship to each of those pans, to my three-layer steamer on which I have made many a night's broccoli and fish simultaneously. Then there's my big sautus in which I've made everything from paprikash 
to stroganoff to poulet moutard more times than I can count. There's my little saucepan in which I've struggled and often failed to make Bernays sauce. There's my copper double boiler from Delorean in which I've tried to make better Bernays sauce still. Now, each one of those pans had a character, a personality, and a personal history with me. But what could I do? My family brought me uh, the, my new induction range, and I had no choice but to adapt to it. It may be, now that I think about it, Chris, that the reason I was so drawn to the cult of Griswoldania was that it was the only thing that had some of the mystique, some of the personal connection that one feels towards beautiful French copper that I could imagine working on my new range. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. After the break, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Malton. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready? I think it's time to do this. Hello, welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Barbara from Houston, Texas. Oh, hello, Barbara from Houston, Texas. How can we help you? Well, I've often been frustrated by recipes that tell you to use um, various kinds of produce based on their size. For example, a medium onion or a sweet potato. And those things vary so dramatically in size that I have no idea what volume I really need. And so I wonder, does it really not matter? Or is there some kind of standard that you go by when someone says a medium onion or a medium eggplant? Well, there's some things that I've decided myself. So, for example, a medium onion chopped would be about a cup. Or a clove of garlic would be about a teaspoon. Okay. Now it drives me crazy. The reason people write recipes that way is because you don't go to the supermarket looking for a cup of chopped onion. You go to the supermarket to buy an onion. So uh-huh. you sort of have to give people a point of view. But medium onion might not be, to me, one medium might be to you large or small. So it's yeah. all relative. So I agree with you. It's really annoying. Uh, so there are some standard things, but some things have really changed from when the, those old recipes were written. I remember when I started at Gourmet Magazine, a chicken breast a half was about, I don't know. Four or five ounces. Four or five ounces. Now it's eight. Eight. To as yeah. as yeah. my friend Jean Anderson would say, now they're double D. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so it's really a problem. I mean, I, I, one could argue you should only buy books that give you the amounts, but at the same time yeah. give you a sort of a vague idea of how to buy it at the supermarket. And I also think that, especially in baking, 
grams, to weigh things in grams. For example, if you go to King Arthur website and they say a cup of flour is 4.2 ounces, well, I think it should be five ounces. And I mean, you can't weigh flour by volume. It's much better to do it by weight. Because if you have five people measuring a cup of flour, they'll get a different I, I took a class at King Arthur Flour. Yeah. 20 of us took this class, and all of us had to measure a cup right. of flour and take it up to the front. It and was it, totally different. Oh, it varied from four ounces to eight ounces. Depending on how packed or fluffy exactly. it is. Exactly. But so, right. uh-huh. so with baking, you really should weigh. But with cooking, it's changed so much. You're going to have to decide what works for you and... You know, at the yeah. end of the day, a little extra onion's not going to kill matter. the recipe. Where I think it right. would really matter is... A little extra baking powder would destroy the recipe. Right, but that you would have measured at least somewhat anyway. I, I've never seen recipes that require baking ingredients in weight versus volume. We're working on that. I'm working on that, and Chris <laughs> is working on that. We, yeah. we give grams and volume. Right, but not everybody agrees on the volume to the grams either. You know, I uh, yeah. for my book, I used the King Arthur website what they said, but the European model is actually slightly different, so you have to decide. Uh-huh. Well, when uh-huh. I was doing my book, I had to decide what worked for me. Have you done any of those breads, you know, like the no-need breads and all those? Uh-huh. They're all about weighing. They insist mm-hmm. on all the way down to the yeast. So there's no standard of, like, produce sizes that says all, you know, medium eggplants weigh this many grams. It's not like a standard I can go to. I just sort of well, learn it from experience what works. Yeah, and if you use books... From Europe, for example, they tend to put grams in almost everything. But we're, we're probably five to ten years away from doing that here. But eventually, oh. everything will be in grams. It'll give amount of carrots. It'll give everything in grams. Everybody will need to have a scale in their kitchen. Well, they don't cause much, and they, they don't cause make much. life easier. They really do. No, it's very helpful. Okay, well, thank you guys yeah, so much. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thank you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Ron from Walton Mass. How are you? Good. How are you? How can um, I help you? Very, very excited to be talking to you guys. You're like my like two culinary heroes. <laughs> I appreciate <laughs> Our pleasure. It. Let me get to the point. Uh, I'm told I'm a little bit of a rice snob. Actually, my girlfriend made the mistake of making me Justin rice with coconut once, and after that, she swore she'd never make me rice again. <laughs> my question is, I'd love to get the rice very fluffy and all the grain separate, so I don't know what grade of rice I should be using, first of all. And what technique? What I typically do, I take a medium grain rice and I kind of saute it, toast it on the pan, and then I add water to it, cover it by about an inch, and then let the water go down to just the surface of the rice, and then I cover it on low for about 10 minutes. And that works pretty good, but I'd like to get your comments on how do I get perfectly fluffy rice? Two things. The ratio of water to rice is critical. I used to use three parts water to two parts rice, so a cup and a half of water to a cup of rice. I'm now down to about a cup and a quarter of water to a cup of rice, and that seems to work pretty well. Secondly, there are these Japanese... Rice cookers. Rice cookers. Uh, and this is not electric. This is top of the stove, and they're uh, ceramic. They're pottery, uh, oh, okay. and they have two covers, uh-huh. an inner cover and outer cover, and I don't know why they work so well, but they work great. We tested it against a regular rice cooker and a regular stovetop method, and the rice was 50% better. D-O-N-A-B-E is sort of the style of pot. You could look at Amazon, I guess. Danabe. Uh-huh. Yeah, Danabe. They're really good. They're not cheap. I think they're 60 or $70, but they make terrific rice. Now, one other thing. We just found a Korean medium-grain brown rice, but it's sort of in between brown and white. It cooks in about 18 minutes. It's called... Sukayaka, S-U-K-O-Y-A-K-A. You can get it at Amazon. Well, excellent, because that was my next question. I can't for the life of me make brown rice correctly. No, this is great. It drives me crazy. Well, it's partially hulled in a way where it cooks faster, but it has Mm -hmm. a lot of flavor. Okay. That's cool. I'm glad to learn about that. It's Sukayaka brown rice, Genmai. It's terrific. Well, thank you both very much for the suggestions, and I really look forward to listening to you on the show. Thanks for everything you've both done for the world. We really appreciate it. Pleasure. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you'd like your cooking questions answered, give us a call anytime. The number, of course, is 1-855-4-BOWTIE or 1-855-426-9843. You can also email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. By the way, you can find all of our shows as podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, and, of course, at MilkStreetRadio.com. 
This week's Mill Street Basic is on preparing nonstick pans for baking. Well, hear the bad news. Nonstick baking pans are unfortunately not nonstick. They're sort of low stick. So every time you want to use one, you have to grease it before pouring in the batter. And this is especially true of bunt pans. So the easiest method is to use a baking spray, which is a nonstick spray that also contains flour. But with cakes with a high sugar content, we recommend that you use a second method. Use your fingers to coat the inside of the pan with softened butter, and then add a tablespoon or two of sugar to the pan. Shake and turn the pan until the sugar coats the butter and then pour out any excess. Now this produces a foolproof release and also gives the sides and bottom of the cake a really pleasant sugary crunch. Now it's time to chat with Nikki Giovanni. She's an American poet and activist. She's a university distinguished professor at Virginia Tech, also been awarded seven NAACP Image Awards, nominated for a Grammy, was a finalist for the National Book Award, She's also authored three New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller. She's here today to talk about her grandparents and the recipe that kept their marriage alive. Welcome to Milk Street. Oh, thank you. Let me just read a couple quotes from you. I've been considered a writer who writes from rage, and it confuses me. What else do writers write from? I write from interest and love, mostly a lot of love because I'm getting old. Uh, Bonnie Raitt teaches us, you know, Life gets mighty precious when there's less of it to share. Uh, We're here today to talk about a recipe, a smoked rack of lamb. Uh, Maybe you could just briefly tell us how you make it. Oh, well, everything in the world to me starts with olive oil. So you have to get your olive oil and garlic. You have to have garlic. I really prefer fresh garlic. And what you're doing with the smoker is you're, you're just actually, you're getting some good wood and you're putting it to one side and the lamb is on the other. The first thing you're going to do with the lamb, of course, is you're going to brown it and then you're going to move it over and the next thing that's really, really, really important is to leave it alone, <laughs> and that's the truth. Nobody ever wants to leave it alone, but you leave it alone. I recommend a glass of champagne because I drink <laughs> a, a cheap champagne that I love a lot. So I have a dog. Her name is Cleo, and we don't let her have champagne, but, but she goes in the house with us, and we just sit down and let it just smoke through. My mother, both my mother and my grandmother, were wonderful cooks. Mommy did everything with uh, bay leaf, but grandmother did almost everything with nutmeg. And Mm. so even though it's lamb, and you might say that makes it too sweet, it just kind of brings it out. Just, you know, you kind of rub it in. It just brings out something different. So this is a rack of lamb, right? This is a rack, yeah. I like the rack because I like bones. And uh, and Cleo, of course, likes bones. I had a, a rack of veal the other day, and of course, it, it made Cleo just crazy because she was just waiting for me to get finished so she could get the bone. Well, she's a puppy right now, but I like to sit and chew on a bone, and, and I watch Jeopardy a lot, so I sit and, and watch Jeopardy <laughs> and laugh. <laughs> so the recipe is a rack of lamb, some nutmeg, some olive oil, a bottle of champagne, and a puppy, right? Yeah, and I, I would add one <laughs> other thing, smile. And a smile, it, it, yeah. It's always good to, to smile. And um, I think uh, I was laughing. I was out in, in Kansas the other day, and the kids were saying, what are you doing? I said, I think it's good to fall in love, too. And, of course, uh, again, I'm, I'm back to my Bonnie Raitt uh, period, you know, just in the nick of time. At my, right. I'm 73. So it's really nice to just sit around and kind of smile and say, oh, yeah, this, this, this is what it's all about. I'm cooking for someone, and I'm eating with someone. That's, that's what life is all about, isn't it? You're right. That is what life is all about. I think that's interesting. You you point out that it while it's cooking, it's that time out, right? Isn't mm-hmm. that it's time out? It's it's something's cooking. You're busy, but you're sitting having a glass of champagne. That's yeah. the nicest part of the day, isn't it? Well, it really it really is. But I'm also competitive because I am a poet, and I've been watching a show called Beat Bobby Flay. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get on Beat Bobby Flay because I know I could beat Bobby Flay. And I'm just thinking, well, I I need to get on the show because I would love to beat Bobby Flay. The trick is the jury. So I'm going to bring my three poets. I'm not going to let Flay bring his culinary experts. I'm going to bring the poets. Pack the jury box, huh? Yeah, you go. (laughs) So this was a—there's a a story behind this uh, with your grandparents and— Well, my my grandfather— 
graduated Fisk University in 1905. And my grandmother was in Albany, Georgia, but she was only allowed, because of the age of segregation, to go to um, Albany Normal School. And so when Grandpapa moved back home, of course, he had a wife, but then he met Grandmother. And uh, I, don't, I really don't know how they fell in love, but it, it got to the point he was walking past her house every day, and he was asking her friends to, his friends to ask her for ice cream. Grandmother always loved ice cream. And Grandmother adored pineapple. And after I went to live with them, we're in Knoxville, Tennessee. Grandpapa, he would come back home and he'd have to walk up the steps. And he'd say, Louvenia, I got a pineapple. And I would go like, oh, my God, because I knew it was going to happen. And she would be, oh, John Brown, she would be thrilled. And he would ruin perfectly good ice cream by putting pineapples in it. And I never was able to sort of say it as calmly as I could. Grandpapa, why would you ruin ice cream by putting pineapple in it? (laughs) So... (laughs) I don't know. Maybe you like pineapple. I really don't. I but, don't like pineapple in my ice cream, no. Thank you. But the older I get, the more amazing it is that they stayed in love. They were in love all of these all of these years. He was married to another woman, and as he kept saying, I only wanted to kiss your, your grandmother. And she always said, John Brown, if I had let you kiss me, you would have never married me. And I didn't understand any of that until I was uh, much, much, much older. But he did get a divorce. He divorced uh, his wife, and he wanted to marry grandmother. And uh, actually, he didn't He didn't much care what they thought because he was in love. I always said, well, if I'm going to be married, that's what I want. I, I would want it to be exactly what they had. That was Nikki Giovanni, an American poet and activist. You know, growing up, I knew some real characters, beatniks, political agitators, fishing guides in three-piece wool suits, and folk singers with battered guitars. Nikki Giovanni would fit right in, frisky, outspoken, and bullish on life. She's the smart, kooky person you want to sit next to at a party. But that doesn't make her old-fashioned. That kind of fashion just never goes out of style. I'm Christopher Kimball. As always, you can listen to our weekly shows on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Spotify. Also on our very own website, which is MilkStreetRadio.com, where you can also download each week's recipe. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer Amy Padula. Production assistant Carly Helmetog. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor Melissa Allison with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help Debbie Paddock. Theme music by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.